Hello, everyone. Uh, a very warm welcome to the LSE for this online event to all of you, wherever you are. And uh, I very much hope it is a global event. Uh, Sylvia stood very much for global reach, uh, and I hope we reach a global audience with this event. My name is Eric Neumeyer. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Environment, though currently I'm the Pro-Director Planning and Resources at the school. Uh, I am very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Naila Kabir um, for this very first lecture in our new series organized in memory of our colleague, Professor Sylvia Chand, who very sadly died uh, about one year and two months uh, ago. So it is an honor to chair the first lecture in memory of Sylvia. Um, one thing Sylvia did not live to experience is COVID, the subject of our talk today. And uh, I was chatting to Nyla before. One thing that has to be said about Sylvia, she would have actually been brilliant in COVID times because she would have so much uh, stepped up, answered emails to students in the middle of the night and wanted to cover for colleagues left, right and center because that was just a wonderful citizen and person Sylvia was. But now to today's event. Naila is Professor of Gender and Development at the Department of Gender Studies and also the Department of International Development here at the LSE. Her research interests include gender, poverty, social exclusion, labor market and livelihoods, social protection and citizenship. Much of her research is focused on South and Southeast Asia. In her lecture today, Naila will use a feminist economic lens to analyze a range of different impacts associated with COVID-19 and to explore the kinds of policies that such a lens would suggest for a more resilient and equitable future. For those of you in the audience who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag uh, LSECOVID19, all one word. This online event is being recorded and we will hopefully make it available as a podcast, of course, all going well on the technical side. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Professor Kabir. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will pose as many as possible to her. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We're particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students. So please let us know. But now I'm delighted to hand over to you, Naila. Over to you. Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, I'm very honored and very moved to be asked to present the first lecture in this series established to honor our dear colleague and friend, Professor Sylvia Chant, who, as Eric said, we lost a year ago. Uh, the publicity for this lecture has had many photographs of Sylvia as a colleague. And so what I would like to share now is a photograph of Sylvia as a friend. And there we are, myself, Diane Perrins, Hazel and Sylvia in what I used to like to call Sylvia's, uh, um, the enchanted garden of Sylvia Chant. So I was asked to talk about something that uh, Sylvia might have been interested in. And as Eric said, actually gender and COVID-19 from a feminist perspective is probably one of those. Um, and so here it is, uh, I will be, sharing what we as feminist economists have to contribute to the ongoing conversation about COVID-19. I will be drawing on contributions to a special issue of feminist economics on this topic, which will be online very soon and will be open access till July. And I will draw specifically on the introduction, which was written by the three co-authors, Jana Rogers, Shara Razavi and myself. I should also add that um, that Sylvia was on the editorial board of Feminist Economics. Um, the structure of the lecture, I'm gonna talk a little bit about fault lines that have emerged uh, in the time of COVID, 
talk about labor markets and how they have affected uh, men and women differently, talk a little bit about cooperation and conflict in the domestic domain, negotiations around care and uh, the issue of violence, and then some reflections on policy. Uh, Naila, yes. uh, I believe you're not sharing your screen yet. Oh, okay. I knew there so would be a... I think the audience has not seen the photo and has not seen your slide. Okay. Um... Is that better? Uh, yes. Okay. There we go. Okay, so here is the picture of uh, Dan Perrins, Hazel Johnson, and myself in Sylvia's garden. Uh, her husband took the picture, so sadly he's not in it. And this is the structure that I mentioned. Um, I'm not going to be sharing uh, the PowerPoint for most of the lecture, uh, but I hope to come back to it at the end. So let me start by asking what we as feminist economists have to contribute to this conversation of gender and COVID and the fact that I'll be drawing on this special issue. Um, what is very interesting, first of all, I should say that while gender is the entry point for all our discussions, it is now more than ever embedded in an intersectional understanding of inequality, of the way in which gender intersects with inequalities of class, uh, ethnicity, race, and so on. Um, and of course, such an intersectional perspective is imperative in times of COVID. We have become all too aware that while the virus itself might be blind to you know, your identity, your nationality, and so on, risks of infection and your ability to cope with the infection varies considerably. Uh, and it reveals inequalities that we knew were there, but we somehow did not comprehend them as fully as we might have. And these inequalities have become exacerbated in the times of COVID uh, to the extent that they may have long lasting implications if we don't do something about them for social unrest and deteriorating rights. However, there's another outcome of this uh, crisis, which I hope will have a long lasting effect and that it will hold the key to a fairer, building a fairer economy in the future. And that is that the crisis has drawn attention to forms of work that are essential in our daily lives, much of which we took for granted when we look back on what we are, what we now call normal times. All the major crises that have happened in recent years have revealed various fault lines in society uh, between groups of workers who were more or less vulnerable to losing their jobs. So perhaps during the East Asian crisis, um, you know, it was uh, male workers in construction and so on that were most likely to lose their jobs. In the global financial crisis, it was people linked to the global economy in export garments, migrant, international migrants. This crisis has revealed a very different set of fault lines. Some recognized officially, others unacknowledged. The first and most widely uh, recognized is between essential workers whose work must continue during the pandemic and non-essential workers whose activity has been brought to a halt or relocated to the homes. Essential workers are those whose services are necessary for us to continue in our daily life and to save our health and lives. They include well-paid professionals such as doctors and scientists and public health officials, but the vast majority are made up of low-wage service workers, normally deemed unskilled, but now recognized as essential to ensure the sale and delivery of hosts of goods and services, uh, cleaning, home health, uh, garbage disposal, the post, and so on. But amongst essential workers, too, there is a fault line, one that goes largely unremarked, and that is between paid and unpaid essential work. Although it is carried out as routinely as paid essential work and is as critical to everyday life as paid essential work, the work of those who undertake care work and household work within the home has remained largely invisible during this pandemic, even though the burden of this work has increased. 
And among non-essential workers too, there are fault lines. There are fault lines between those of us, like me, who can continue to work from home because I have access to necessary technology and those of us who can't. And among those of us who can't, the more fortunate live in countries where they may get some kind of support from their governments, the less fortunate live in countries where they have to fend for themselves. So turning now to labor markets, one of the big contributions I think that feminist economists have made to the analysis of inequalities in labor markets is in relation not to the way that individuals fare in the labor market, but how individuals as members of groups fare. And so it is through the segmentation of the labor market that we get to understand inequality. And this segmentation has helped to explain um, the disproportionate impacts that have been experienced by women as a result of two kinds of disruptions of labor markets. On the one hand, job losses in sectors that have been hardest hit by the shutdown, and on the other hand, overrepresentation in frontline jobs that, are, have, to, that have to continue. Globally, around 40% of all women workers, compared to about 36% of men, work in services that were hardest hit economically by the pandemic tourism, hotel and food services, wholesale and retail trade, um, labor intensive manufacturing. In fact, rapid assessments in the Asia Pacific region has shown that women's overrepresentation in these hardest hit sectors means that they have lost out most in terms of working hours and in terms of jobs. On the other hand, women are also overrepresented in the essential frontline work. Over 70% of women globally uh, are in healthcare and social services. The surge in the number of sick people in hospitals, in care homes, and so on, has led to a huge demand in, in the services of nurses, assistants, home health workers. These frontline workers are at greatest risk from COVID. Uh, 19, and they were particularly vulnerable in the early phase where there was simply not enough protective equipment to go around because of the limits on exports by China who made most of them. And those of us in the UK all recall the photographs of nurses uh, in bin liners because there was not enough equipment to go around. Labour market segmentation tells us that the channels through which exposure to the contagion travels uh, is is through, this, uh, through these concentrations of workers. So a, a survey of around 25 European countries found that women made up over half of those infected and an index to measure your, um, the degree of social contact that you have found that of course that women were over-concentrated in the kinds of jobs that required face-to-face -face contact with, with others and hence likelihood of infection. And this was mainly in healthcare, health care, education, and hospitality. In fact, gender emerges more important as either age or experience in, in, in explaining uh, exposure to infection. Labor market segmentation also explains the intersectional nature of the impacts of the pandemic, with gender intersecting with race, ethnicity, class, disability, and so on, to show up in patterns of unemployment. In the United States, not only did unemployment rates for women exceed those of men to, so far during the early years of pandemic, but they were even higher for Hispanic and Black women. In South Africa, the lockdown led to substantial declines in employment and working hours for both men and women. Job losses were larger for the African population than non-African, for the lowest income tercile compared to higher ones, and for the less educated compared to the more educated. And in each one of these categories, job losses were larger for women than for men. Then there is a close uh, correlation between marginalized identities and informal work. Again, our surveys from Asia Pacific show that lo job losses were largely concentrated, were higher in the informal economy where uh, working women are largely concentrated. Not only did men and women um, report a decline in paid jobs, but they also reported a decline in informal sources of support in countries where there is very little social protection. So a decline in family businesses, in remittances and assets, and women once again reported higher levels of decline. Amongst vulnerable workers, we find greater, amongst informal workers, we find greater vulnerability amongst some workers than others. 
So for millions of domestic workers, labor market setbacks and income insecurities have been extremely acute. Um, and of course, 80% of uh, domestic workers who clean and cook and so on are women. Um, domestic workers unions have talked about the violations of workers' rights, not being able to leave employers' homes, uh, having their um, leave cancelled with no notice. But these violations are most acute, of course, for international migrant workers, many of them who are domestics. They are caught between different degrees of lockdown in their home and host countries, leaving many without jobs and in, in a legal limbo. Those on sponsorship visas have been hardest hit. When their employment was severed, they could not access unemployment be benefits, were unable to qualify for emergency response measures such as healthcare or cash, and could not look for other employment or even leave the country because of travel restrictions. But of course, in some countries, internal workers, sorry, internal migrants have been reminded of their unequal status. In the Indian context, of course, the abrupt imposition of lockdown measures, the closure of all establishments and restrictions on public transport left nearly half a million internal migrants without any work, forced to return home, walking several hundreds of miles and many dying on, on the way. Uh, and in China, we found that many of the women who had, uh, many of the internal migrants who had gone home um, for the spring festival before the Wuhan lockdown. Among those, more women and more women with young children did not return to their jobs after the holiday. And here, of course, in the UK, many of those who make up the ranks of essential workers are migrants who will not be eligible to return in the country under the current government's new immigration policy, which deems all those who earn less than £25,000 to be unskilled and unwelcome. Turning now to contestations within the home, feminists have analyzed households and families as sites of cooperation intermeshed with conflict, sites of care and intimacy, as well as power, inequality and violence. The analysis of domestic institutions and labor markets have tended to be carried out separately. Uh, you have people who work on households and people who work on labor markets, but the COVID disruptions have reminded us of the interconnections between the two. Disruptions in the economy have had profound reverberations within the home, while struggles to manage their consequences within the home, uh, when homes are overcrowded, when the capacity to do homeschooling is undermined by other stresses, will have important implications for resilience and recovery. Research during the pandemic has trained a spotlight on the household's role in the unpaid care economy. Women continue to do the bulk of routine household and care work in much of the world, but there are variations in the extent to which men have increased their contributions to non-routine domestic work. Lockdowns and stay-at-home orders appear to have increased unpaid workloads. There was one contribution in our, in our special issue that suggested that there had been a shift to a more egalitarian, a gender egalitarian division of labor within the home during lockdown. This was in Spain, but there was a selection bias in that it focused on individuals with higher levels of education and access to internet. In these households, they found that a significant proportion of, of couples had moved towards a much greater egalitarianism, but a significant minority remained within the old norms with women taking up the bulk of domestic labor. The more common pattern has been one of uh, the disproportionate burden of unpaid work falling on, on women. So the surveys that we had from the Asia Pacific region found that while both men and women reported an increase in unpaid domestic and care work since COVID-19, the increase in the case of men was, was, was restricted to one or two activities, while for women, it entailed three or more activities. In other words, workloads had both increased and intensified for women. And men were more likely than women to report an increase in their partner's contribution to household chores and work a pattern that held for employed men and women as well as the unemployed, as well as the entire sample. We find similar uh, uh, stories from Australia and the UK where 
Women shouldered much of the burden, but whereas for some of the non-routine or let us say the more enjoyable aspects of unpaid care work, which is looking after the kids, were likely to be taken up by men. And data from, the Panam from Panama, which implemented a sex-segregated mobility policy, allowing men and women to leave their homes for essential services, groceries and pharmacies, on alternate days, offered a variation of this selectivity in gender responsibilities. It found that men were much more likely to take on the public aspects of domestic work, doing the shopping, while women did more of the tasks within the confinement of the home. But one other thing that came out of the Panama work was the problematic implications of this binary understanding of gender for members of the transgender and otherwise non-binary community who attempt to leave their homes on days that were in accordance with their gender identity, but met with uh, resistance by the law. The fallout from COVID and its impact on, on uh, unpaid care has obviously had secondary health impacts in terms of both mental and physical well-being. And women generally report high, both men and women report higher uh, adverse impacts in terms of well-being, but women are much more likely to report it when they report an intensity, intensification of domestic and unpaid care work. They were much more likely to report a deterioration in their mental and physical uh, and emotional well-being. And a very interesting example of this came from a study of doctors in Kazakhstan. This study actually started before COVID, so it was able to use a time series to see how things had changed after COVID. What it showed was a clear increase in levels of stress and anxiety and in health-related and in bad health behavior. Uh, on for doctors, but the gender difference was mediated by family structures, so that the effects on stress and anxiety was much higher for married women doctors with children compared to unmarried women doctors. It also increased the likelihood of married women doctors smoking, but it reduced the likelihood of poor work, eating habits. Among male doctors, stress and anxiety and poor eating habits were higher among unmarried male doctors than married ones, whether the married ones had children or not. So clearly marriage and children assure better eating habits amongst male doctors and reduce their levels of stress and anxiety, but increase the levels of stress and anxiety and smoking amongst female doctors. So the study highlights the stresses created by the dual role that professional mothers must balance, must balance but it tells us that these stresses are exacerbated for, a, for women doctors in times of heightened anxieties of COVID. A number of the studies actually cast an interesting light on the later stages of the life course in mediating the experience of pandemic. One point that was very clear is in the two or three contributions, the older generation featured either as recipients of care or as providers of care. So UK found that many of those essential workers often in irregular forms of work were relying on grandparents to look after kids. With the lockdown um, and the closing down of, of normal services and the lockdown on grandparents, these workers were having a great difficulty in managing both their work and their, and their care services. Um, in South Africa, where grandparents were more likely to live. So in the UK, grandparents lived somewhere else and so they couldn't come and look after the kids. But in South Africa, grandparents are more likely to be part of multi-generational households. And they have remained key childcare providers, both in the absence and presence of parents, as well as where parents are essential workers and have to continue to work. And in addition, the uh, Receipt of the old age grant to poorer sections of the older population has provided a crucial source of support uh, at a time when so many parents are unemployed. But of course, the health risk to older people when they are exposed in these caring roles uh, has not featured in the policy discussion, nor the tension of stretching their pensions over a larger number of people than in normal times. In fact, in Italy, 
the COVID experience of the older population, many of them grandparents, seems to mirror regional variations in women's engagement in the labor market and the associated patterns of familial arrangements and norms governing intergenerational obligations. In the north central regions of Italy, where economic development is higher and has generated an increase in women's employment, poor levels of public resourcing means that there has been a steady commodification of care. In the South, on the other hand, high levels of unemployment have left the care of children and the elderly anchored within the home. So the article in our, in our special issue suggests that the very much higher levels of mortality among the older population in North Central Italy compared to the South reflected variations in the degree of interdependency between family members. Elderly people in the South were found to spend much more time on care work within the family, and it was likely they were better looked after during the pandemic. In the North Central region, either, on the other hand, they were much more likely to live alone or in private nursing homes, and many of them had not been visited for several weeks before the survey. So these were the region, the regions with the highest number of people living in care homes reported the highest levels of mortality amongst the elderly, and many more of them are likely to have died alone uh, because of the fewer visits. What, however, is missing from our special issue, and I hope that we will see it in future issues of feminist economics, is how elder women, elder older women who have to reign, remain economically active have fared during the pandemic. A quick perusal of international statistics tells us that labor force participation continues for much longer into the life course among the poor in poor countries where there is no pension provision and where reliance on children or grandchildren is likely to constitute a burden. And for a variety of reasons, we also know that poverty is older amongst this older generation. So we look forward to seeing some articles about how the active elderly have fared in the time of COVID. One other issue on the domestic side, of course, which we have all read about is what has been called the shadow pandemic, which is intensified conflict and increased incidence and severity of violence across different countries in the world. The UN Secretary General reported that in some countries, the number of calls for domestic violence support services had doubled. One of the contributions used a novel daily mobile device track device tracking data as well as extensive police reports and crime data to show that shelter in place orders uh, in the US had caused domestic violence to increase by approximately 6% between mid-March and mid-April 2020. So it increased by 6% over a period of a month. And major cities in Brazil have also reported increase in domestic violence uh, because of uh, in Rio, um, exports of reports of uh, domestic violence increased by around 50% during the uh, months of the lockdown. A number of risk factors have been noted, the increased psychological and financial stress in the face of reduced out incomes, seemingly endless confinement, and for men in particular who are accustomed maybe to going down, out and about and on the streets and so on, the stress might be higher, rising rates of alcohol consumption, increased amount of time spent with abusers, and difficulties in reaching a telephone or reaching a shelter, which you might have done in normal times. Class is likely to intersect with uh, these uh, with this violence because confinement is far more stress stressful in cramped homes and overcrowded slums. So, turning now to the public responses, um, let me start out the discussion with a very intriguing, a very curious but potentially significant question that has surfaced during the pandemic, and that is: Do women lead differently from men? Have they responded differently to the COVID crisis? There are two contributions on this in our special issue. They come to similar conclusions, but through different pathways, different causal pathways. One used data on 194 countries in which 10% which were led by women. And controlling for other influences, they found fewer cases and deaths related to COVID per day in female-led countries. They suggested that the reason was that female-led countries locked down earlier. 
The other used data from 144 countries and also found fewer average cases of uh, infection and deaths. They looked at social distancing measures and found that there was not much difference between men and women. And they felt that the differences reflected uh, investments in the degree of health coverage. And of course, the differences in these results could reflect sample, sample composition, methodological approach, as well as the containment measures studied. So one looked at social distancing, the other at lockdown. And one point about the lockdown is, of course, that it is a short-term instrument which, which aims to contain the spread of the virus and even to eliminate it, and it leads to a closure of all economic activity. While social distancing requires behavioral change that can allow economic activity to continue. So there may be something along those lines that explains it. However, both mechanisms actually have their counterpart in studies that have been done around this issue. And so there are many studies that have looked at how women in public office allocate budgets differently from men in public office and are much more likely to allocate budgets in ways that address the well-being and uh, living standards of families. Uh, and there is also a, a, a lot of literature about risk and the extent to which men and women's attitude risk might differ. And it might specifically differ when it comes to people's health. This is speculation. We do not have a much clearer picture of what the differences might reflect. So let me now turn to feminist uh, interventions in the policy discussions. Between February and September 2020, 208 countries and territories announced at least 1,407 social protection measures in response to COVID. Most of them ex extending uh, coverage of existing programs to workers in the informal economy and removing various obligations and conditions which in order to facilitate, facilitate access to income transfers. In the meanwhile, however, um, the closure of schools, universities, and childcare services in more than 100 countries impacted on more than 800 million children and youth. Yet only 8% of the social protection and labor market measures addressed unpaid care through the provision of paid family leave, shorter and flexible working arrangements, emergency childcare services, or support for long-term uh, care facilities. This reflects the values uh, that societies or their governments hold about who needs support. The COVID, cri the COVID crisis has propelled the issue of social protection onto a critical juncture in the international agenda. When the pandemic recedes, we may choose go to go back to the old normal, fall back on minimal safety nets and stopgap measures, which leave large gaps in coverage, or we may choose this unprecedented experience, the first global scale pandemic, uh, and accept that we now live in a world in which individual risks and generalized crises are endemic, that they come in many different forms, uh, environmental, economic, the human body, and that we need a more systemic approach to social protection to sustain us through these crises, to do what we can to prevent them, but that above all, to address some of the deep-seated vulnerabilities that make everyday lives of so many people precarious, undervalued or unrecognized, and lead to intensified suffering in times of crisis. This pandemic has reminded us that there are services in normal as well as exceptional times that are essential for daily life to continue at some basic minimum level. But it has been the paid version of these essential services that have been categorized as essential. What continues to be hidden, unacknowledged, taken for granted and naturalized is the unpaid care and household labor that is largely provided by, within, by women within the family. By way of conclusion, I would like to draw on some points from the special issue, but also from the wider literature about how we can build back fairer. One, of, one is an argument that has been made by Michael Sandel in his new book, The Tyranny of Merit, in, written in response to the alienation of large sections of the American working class who feel that their society no longer values them, that the jobs they do have no recognition or respect. He calls he calls for uh, a normative shift, uh, a, a new kind of social contract, which would combine it, 
ideas about distributive justice with ideas of what he calls contributive justice. His argument is, not, is that not everyone is going to rise to the top of their society. Not everyone is going to become rich, but they will still continue to do forms of work that are essential to the, to the health of our society. The idea of contributive justice is to shift from valuing people on the basis of the money they make to valuing them on the basis of their contributions to the common good. It is a vision of society as constituted by our mutual interdependence. He would like to see us retain our recognition of the essential nature of the services provided by those who we now call temporary workers or casual workers and to reward them accordingly with the returns that they need to have pride in their work and dignity in the eyes of others. And interestingly, given the uh, emphasis that feminists have played have placed on the uh, political role of budgets, he places a great deal of emphasis on budgets. How budgets raise money, who they tax and at what rates, how they spend money and on what and to what extent does it create conditions for all to flourish are clearly political choices. They reflect a society's judgment about what constitutes a valuable contribution to the common good. But unfortunately for me, I think, Sandel seems to be talking throughout about paid essential workers. And he uses a wonderful quote from Martin Luther King to illustrate this. Martin Luther King Jr. said, one day our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive. Because the first person who picks up our garbage is in the final analysis as significant as the physician. For he, if he did not do his job, diseases would be rampant, all labor is dignified. And I would like to extend that idea of contributive justice to those who do not labor for any kind of monetary reward. And this is a point that Nancy Fulbright makes in her quote. Um, and she says in one of the most famous sentences in the history of economic thought, Adam Smith wrote, it is not from the uh, benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Adam Smith, she says, neglected to mention that some of these tradesmen actually, none of these tradesmen actually put their own dinner on the table. It was done by the cooks, the maids, wives and mothers in one fell swoop. They are ignored. So I would imagine also that the sanitation worker that Martin Luther King was talking about also had someone else to put his dinner on the table. So to end, what I would like to say is that uh, in order that we build back better, in order that we build back fairer, I think we need to take the whole care economy, the knowledge economy, the human capabilities economy much more seriously. We need good quality education, provision for lifelong learning. We need support for care services that will support and redistribute the unpaid labor of looking after the elderly, the disabled and the uh, 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 young, more gen generally provided by women within the home, so that women can also participate more fully in the public domain. A guaranteed social infrastructure that creates people whose well-being, productivity, and resilience becomes the backbone of the new economy, its means as well as its ends. Few of us, few of us want to return to that top-down model that generated inequalities. Many of us would like to build upwards from our human base, and I will end there. Thank you very much, uh, Nadia, for your presentation. Uh, fascinating and quite uh, wide-ranging. We'll now open the floor to questions. Um, I'm receiving some questions. Uh, there are so many questions I will have to uh, choose from. We simply do not have enough time, but let me go to, for example, this one here from Tatiana. Potlichevsky, I hope I got that right, an MSc student, she asked if you are aware of a differential impact um, specifically on girls' access to education in relation to boys, and if girls' care duties have also been raised during the COVID. So it's one thing about adult women, but it's another thing about girls. Uh, any specific information on that? None that I know of uh, explicitly. But I know that from, um, uh, from some of the countries in which I've seen the data is that girls are now more likely to be held back to help with the household chores and so on. But I can't be any more specific than that because I don't have the information. 
Thank you. Uh, Leonie Lindenschmidt, a postgraduate upper holder for MSc Chender, uh, asks a question in a similar vein. Uh, what about non-binary people? Do we have any evidence on, on them? Not in the special issue, but in general, I think that... Um, I think the Panama story was a fairly typical one that uh, we have kind of fallen back into very binary ways of dealing with the crisis. And there are people who are falling through the cracks as far as social protection is concerned, uh, who are facing, you know, intensified violence. Um, and I, I feel that, you, you know, we did not get enough of that material in our uh, in our special issue, but what we, I think if we look anywhere, we do find that there is a real problem about providing support because we have fallen back into a fairly binary trap. So one of the things I found fascinating about your talk is just um, COVID is like a, a, a fresh place of wind on a house that is already on fire. I, it exacerbates, exacerbates a lot of uh, problems that are already there. And Isi Gurbus asks, is there any evidence that governments considered the possible equality impact of COVID-19 policies before enforcing them, I guess, passing them and enforcing them? I guess I know the answer to that. It is no. But at least, do you know of any countries that have sort of in in retrospect, looked at the equality impacts and have tried to learn from them? Um, of COVID-19, you mean? Of, of COVID-19 policies, i.e. of the, of the mm. continent. Uh, I think where, where I see some effort is in reaching out to the informal economy where I think a lot of marginalized workers are to be found. I think that is something that has come onto the government radar in a number of different countries. Um, I feel like the, um, the British government and other governments are now reacting to the extent to which they have discovered that ethnic disparities are uh, you know, one of the things that are really uh, preventing us from progressing forward. So I think it, much of it is being done after the fact, after the event, you know, trying to work out how to reach out to. And that, you know, un, the inability to reach the more marginalized communities is not unique to Britain. I think we're seeing it in, in the US and in, 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 in many other countries. And I suspect it applies to the transgender community as well. Let me uh, continue with a question uh, in that vein. Amelia Neath, I hope I got that right, from the University of Birmingham. Uh, she's a student there. She asks, uh, what do you think about how different governments around the world have responded to gender inequality during the uh, pandemic, where that's seeing certain jobs have been affected or the awareness of domestic abuse, i.e., I guess, do some governments stand out for you of having done a better job uh, at addressing the COVID uh, implications? Take gender. I know your talk is more far-reaching, but take gender. You know, I think we can think of individual leaders. And I, I you know, I think uh, Jacinta Ardern stands out. Uh, I think the health minister in Kerala stands out. And these are people that... It was not so much that they reached out on gender lines, but that they went for a much more universal approach. Um, in terms of explicitly reaching out to address gender inequalities, I haven't seen any government doing it. It's been much more about how universalist you are in your approaches. Yeah, and of course, you know, it is extremely difficult for any government in the middle of a, of a pandemic mm -hmm. to um, do anything but, you know, simple survival mm -hmm. from day to day. I, as a university manager, I also know that. But in that, uh, uh, more along these lines, Rosemary Morgan from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, she asked the following question. G given what you just said about that, you know, no government really stands out, what are some specific recommendations you have uh, that governments should do to address the gender uh, inequities that you have raised? 
I think there's a whole issue of the neglect of unpaid domestic work. And I think, um, you know, uh, offering sort of emergency childcare support, uh, offering a leave in ways that allow, you know, women who have to work to, especially I think for essential workers who have childcare responsibilities, I think for them, there has to be, um, you know, much more responsiveness to their balancing their uh, various uh, responsibilities. Uh, I thought the, the, you know, the study from Kazakhstan was very, very telling about what doctors, you know, male and female doctors are having to go through. Um, I think also in generating certain kinds of um, support systems, you might also be able to generate forms of work of essential work that those who don't have jobs might be able to do. I, I guess at the moment we're seeing it in Britain with the vaccination, you know, with vaccines, people volunteering and being able to do some work. So at the moment in crisis, I don't know how much one can do, but I certainly think that the lessons we've taken for the long run are the ones that we have to focus on. And that will be, how do we avoid being caught so short, you know, so unprepared for crisis. How can we prepare to make sure that the next crisis that comes along, whether it's a pandemic or a financial crisis, doesn't impose these extra burdens and costs on women and particularly on women from marginalized groups. And that really does mean that kind of social infrastructure economy, you know, investing in capabilities as the backbone of all economies so that everybody is in a way, resilient in the face of crisis. Okay, one more in that similar um, vein. Um, Jessica Thomas, an international relations student at the Durham University, University of Durham, she asks, with the benefit of hindsight, and obviously, you know, hindsight is a beautiful thing, but with the benefit of hindsight, what do you think, what steps should the world have taken to better protect women during this crisis, during this pandemic? Well, where to start, partner? <laughs> where to start? Um, you know, it goes back to asking what are the sources of, you know, where is the problem? What are the sources? And the problem lies in the labor market and the problem lies at home. So, Certainly, one, this particular crisis was a health crisis. And so we needed to be prepared on the health front. A financial crisis will be a different kind of crisis. And it will require us to be prepared on the uh, income support, basic services, and so on. So it does, you know, uh, that's why I was very impressed with what Michael Sandel and other people have been saying, it does require a rethink about how we, how we spend our money, how we create a, whatever it's a basic social floor, which is capable of holding people up, no matter what form that crisis takes. And that means all the things that we're now calling essential, so most of the things we're now calling essential services has to be given priority and dignity and so on. So that regardless of, so at the moment we're focusing on the pandemic, but I'm really thinking about the fact that we are, we will be facing a future that will be interrupted by various kinds of crises. And therefore we need a kind of a flexible response that allows us to, to react and then put in place what is specific to different kinds of crises. So, you know, people have talked about a, a, a citizen's income. They've talked about layering it with access to basic services, basic education, basic health. So I think the incremental building up of that kind of universal social protection, I think will stand us in good stead, both men and women and other groups, no matter what form of crisis we face. And let me take a question from um, Basha Gopal. Uh, she's an, he or she is an MA student at Indian Institute of uh, Technology, 
and asks, um, do countries with a majority of the population employed in the services sector, possibly the developed countries, are more likely to experience the gendered unemployment and the gendered implications of the economic crisis more intensely? Or do you think it is rather in developing countries where the gendered implications will more strongly be felt than in the developed world? It's a really interesting question. I'm not sure mm. what I would answer. Well, I'm also not sure of the logic behind it, uh, but I would say that the gendered impacts of crisis are far more intense in poorer, less developed countries. Mm. And the reason is uh, because there is nothing to fall back on mm. in terms of crisis. Um, you know, we are doing some, uh, with the BRAC Institute of Governance and Development, we're doing some interviews, and some of it is with domestic workers and with an older domestic worker. And they asked her, how have things been for her as a result of COVID? And actually, she gave a very interesting answer, and that was, there's no difference. Mm -hmm. You know, her life is one of insecurity. And she has to find a way to survive. And that challenge goes on regardless of COVID and non-COVID. But I suspect she's finding it harder than COVID because she has been dismissed from her job. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, there's no, and that's why we keep going back to the idea of, you know, building a productive social protection floor. Mm -hmm. You know, one that contributes to security, but also contributes to uh, people's ability to look after themselves and, you know, participate in whatever the future looks like. Thank you, Naila. Changing tack slightly, but essentially staying in the same uh, line of um, inquiry. I'm Sun Istayeva. I hope I got that name right. A PhD student and LSE alumna asks, do you think that the COVID-19 crisis challenged or has the potential to challenge the ideal worker norm in inverted commas, i.e., you know, the employer's expectation of continuous and uninterrupted availability to work? Well, uh, her guess is as good as mine, I think. I mean, we're all kind of struggling with the same kind of information base. Uh, but I would say, uh, and that's speculation, that our experience during COVID has opened up some positive possibilities that did not exist and that may challenge the norm of the ideal worker and the presenteeism that has been a bane of you know, many institutions. Um, it may have implications for global, uh, workers in the global south as well. In the sense that, you know, we've talked about outsourcing various kinds of jobs. This new way of doing things also opens up the potential for outsourcing various kinds of jobs now through a different technology to, you know, teaching, for instance, you know, various things that we thought of in terms of people being physically present for a certain number of hours a day. That might have changed. Uh, whether that's for the good or the bad, I think, uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, and I also think it, in the middle of a crisis, it's extremely hard to say how many of the changes that we are sort of starting to observe, how many will be with us for a longer time and or, or others may just disappear again. We just don't know. Um, Leda Haloum, who is a prospective student, asks, what long-term impact do you see for young women growing up during these anomalous times? Well, for both young men and women, I think they've had a very raw deal. Um, I think unemployment is, is much higher in the younger population. Uh, university, the normal you know, schooling and so on is... Um, you know, there's a big gap in their CVs when they go to look for work. Uh, and I think that's going to affect both young men and women equally. But given that young women in general face a much more limited range of opportunities, um, one would imagine, 
that having this kind of missing year may be far more detrimental for them. Um, I'm really trying to think on my feet about this. Uh, and let me, th you know, if I move out of the British context and think about, let us say, South Asia, um, the technologies that we have in Britain that have allowed certain forms of things to continue for skilling and knowledge and classes and so on, it's not equally available to all. And the digital divide means that it's going to be far less available to younger women. So I, I again, you know, it's sort of uh, speculating on the basis of what we know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's been a difficult time. For well, I, I think you're absolutely right about the raw deal. The one thing that I will say that is good for the young generation when the next pandemic comes, which is probably still during their lifetime, at least they will know what hit them. Because Nyla, <laughs> I don't know, with you and me, I had no idea no. until it really started what what yes. this would be because I had, you know, 50 years of uh, a pandemic free world. I mean, I, there were obviously mm -hmm. pan pandemics in this world, but they just never really hit my day to day. Uh, so we, the next two questions are more about uh, the global north versus the global um, south. Uh, Shane, um, Shoshane, student at Wits University in South Africa asks, did COVID expose the governance of crisis management? And what do you recommend for future crises, such as those that are linked to climate change, which are already affecting women in poor countries? I think uh, COVID revealed a crisis, uh, 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 a deficit of management ability, not just in the global south, but in the global north. I think we've seen, you know, some fairly wealthy countries struggling to even acknowledge COVID and then struggling to, to do the needful. But I think for countries in the global south, the problem has been, uh, you know, th there are problems of resources. Uh, how do you respond with the kinds of resources that we have seen the chancellor in this country respond with? Um, I suspect some of the countries in Africa that have been through the Ebola crisis may have been better placed to deal with this one, you know, because it's like Bangladesh is now better placed to deal with natural disasters because we've had so many. And maybe, you know, the Ebola crisis and all that have been, have been quite recent. So we might see some variation in the ability of governments that have, have had some experience in dealing with this and whose people are much more responsive to government uh, instructions. Um, but I think it's, it's taken a while for governments across the world to get into gear. And, and there, I think that whole business of the kind of civil society that you have matters a great deal. You know, how, cohe how cohesive, how, um, how connected you are will make a big difference. So when you have huge inequalities jump over, I think those governments are probably, but, you know, I go back to that uh, health minister in Kerala who managed to do some amazing things with not that much more money than many other governments. So it wasn't really lack of resources. It was, and Kerala has a history of coherent, cohesive society and a responsive government. Kerala has a, a history of, um, you know, producing wonderful outcomes without having mm. the, the massive resources that some yeah. of us. So I think there's a lot to be learned mm. from how you can, with even constrained resources, do well. Um, Naila, one last question, and then we have to wrap it up. Uh, more along these lines. Um, Stella Canessa, an MSc um, international political economy student at the LSE, asks, um, the need for social protection services cannot alleviate inequality unless they're both implemented in the global north and in the global south. What is the responsibility of the global north in ensuring women in the global south are not left behind? What can they do and how, have, how has the global north fared so far? I think there are two prongs to the answer. I think one, of course, is that uh, the redistribution of wealth 
from the north to the south, you know, and not through kind of paternalistic relationships, but through a recognition of interdependence. And I think if COVID-19 has done anything, it's told us that we cannot have fortresses around each our different countries. So I think uh, the, you know, the redistributive mechanism is a, an important one. To what extent can um, uh, foreign assistance and so on be a part of building, helping to build up a more egalitarian. Uh, but the global south also has a responsibility to mobilize resources. I was just a part of um, a webinar in Bangladesh and in Bangladesh, the tax revenue to the GDP is, I think, 10%. You can do nothing with 10%. So I think we also have a responsibility in the global south to not always look towards, you know, foreign assistance, but to also work out to what, you know, what are the mechanisms by which we can, in an egalitarian and progressive way, mobilize more domestic revenue in order to build the kind of, uh, you know, um, stable and secure floors that we need. Now we could go on forever and uh, there are still plenty of questions, but unfortunately we are coming to the end of this talk. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to you, uh, Naila. Thank you very much for taking what we're most grateful you find the time in your busy schedule with us today. and. Uh, Unfortunately, I cannot see the audience, but I'm sure everyone will be clapping <laughs> and uh, saying thank you. And uh, that just leaves me to say thank you very much to the audience as well. Stay well and stay safe. Naila, a last word from you. Well, just to all Sylvia's students, ex-students, family, friends, we remember her and we will continue to remember her. Very wise words on this. Thank you very much. Stay well and stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.